I want you to go with me to John 15, all right? Uh, really a, an important passage of scripture. And uh, we're going to talk here about, um, we're going to talk about vineyards and grapes and vines and those kind of things for a little bit. I had um, an occasion last, last Saturday, not yesterday, but a week ago Saturday when it was so cool. My little friend Francisco came to visit me. In fact, I was up doing some work on this class last Saturday morning, and I heard noise outside, and Francisco's out there working. And uh, he, before he got all finished, he decided that all my trees need to be trimmed. Now, I've got like three river birch trees in my yard because there's extra water there for some reason, and they really like the water. And uh, before he left, he said, um, he held his hand up about this high. He said, I need to cut these trees up about this high. And I said, you're, you know, you're the doctor. You're the expert. Do what do you need to do. It's really interesting to me. I don't understand pruning, but I'm glad somebody does. I mean, if I were to prune this tree, I'd probably lop it off of the ground and, you know, expect it to come back. He knows exactly what he's doing. I don't understand pruning. It's going to talk, we're going to talk about it a little bit here today. I don't understand dieting either, but, but, <laughs> but both are kind of necessary for health from what I understand. And uh, anyway, uh, we're going to get into that today. Now, um, today's lesson involves an illustration of, of the grapevine. Grapevines need to be pruned in order to produce optimal fruit. But the pruning that Jesus is going to talk about is a different kind of pruning, as we're going to see. Uh, you and I probably know, um, if you've studied the Bible much at all, certainly the New Testament, that the vineyard was a staple of agriculture in the ancient world and in the world in which Jesus lived. It was a source of sustenance year-round. Harvested grapes were converted into raisins uh, that would last or converted into wine. And, um, and, and so it's interesting that if you remember the Old Testament, one of the enticing descriptions given to Abraham and, and, and his progeny was uh, these descriptions of, of the uh, promised land as being filled with grapes. Um, it's kind of that beautiful thing. In fact, if you remember one physical sign of that, when the um, spies in the book of Exodus came back, um, actually at the end of the book of Genesis, came back, uh, or a number somewhere in there, uh, came back after spying out the land, that kind of ill-fated spying expedition. If you remember, one of the, the signs of this is a good place, but it's going to be a hard place, was uh, this massive... A uh, collection of grapes that they brought back with us. Big deal. Vineyards were a common sight in Galilee and Samaria and Judah, uh, where uh, Jesus kind of grew up and did his work. He uses a lot of vineyard imagery in his parables of the workers of the vineyard, in the parable of the two sons, in uh, the parable of the wicked tenants, in the parable of the barren fig tree. Uh, we kind of get those pictures, all, all those places. Now, um, pruning seemed to occur kind of severely at certain times of the year. We'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. Leaving a little more than a leafless, branchless stump that'd be propped up with maybe a rock or two. 
All the old branches would be cut off and carried away, providing valuable fuel for home fires. My, one of the things I read this week said that <clears throat> the only use for a, a cut off branch of a grape branch or vine was for fire. They, they weren't useful for much of anything else, but they could burn them. Um, so after the new branches had grown, they pruned them again. And, uh, and that would occur to remove the smaller branches that allowed the larger branches to produce bigger clusters of larger grapes. And uh, that pruning was part of uh, what was known as cultivating the vine. So we kind of have seen all that. Now, it's interesting to me that Jesus backs up to this very agrarian, very kind of common understanding in his last night on the earth before... Uh, his crucifixion. He's gathered, we believe, this is part of uh, kind of uh, the upper room discourse, and we believe that um, uh, this sometimes is called the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. It only occurs in John's gospel, but right here is kind of the, the middle of it. John 14, 15, 16, some of 13 uh, is, is, is this farewell discourse or this upper room discourse. And John only records these very, very intimate words. Now, my, my question to you as we start is if you knew that you were about to depart this life as he did, and you were able to gather the people around you who are important to you, what would you have to say to him? Say to them, don't you think it would be the most important words that you had ever spoken? You would, you would make sure of that, I think. Uh, this is the exact scenario for Jesus in John 15. And that's our study for today. Steve Blair, I've asked you, if you will, to begin us with verse 1 and read down to verse 7. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. Okay. Now, Steve can ask you before you pass that along to go to Jeremiah 2.21. We're going to look at that one in just a minute. Jeremiah 2.21. And then I think Sally's going to come get the, the mic from you. Okay, let's talk about this a little bit. It's interesting here. This, this imagery of the vine is important, not just in the... New Testament, but it's important in the Old Testament as well. It's interesting to me that in, as I read portions of Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, and even the Psalms, they all speak of the nation of Israel as the vine. Uh, but in every one of those instances that I'm finding from the Old Testament, and somebody proved me wrong on this, in every one of the instances where Israel is called the vine in the Old Testament, it's not discussed favorably or, or complimentary. Uh, it's talking about, wait a minute, you are my vine and you didn't stay true. 
Uh, let's look at one for instance. Steve, did you find Jeremiah 2.21? I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Interesting. I planted you. I planted you and you went wild on me. I think is basically what it was saying. And most of these instances in the Old Testament uh, where Isaiah and Hosea and Book of Psalms, Ezekiel, all these talk about the Israel being the vine of God, it's not at all complimentary. It's, you know, you blew it. I planted you, I, I, I tended you, and it didn't go well. You became wild. You got kind of out of control. Uh, uh, it's kind of interesting here. And so if you can hear between the lines the uh, kind of the tenor or the, um, uh, the tone of what Jeremiah even says here, couldn't we make the point here that a new vine is needed? Thus, John 15, a new vine is needed. So Jesus identifies himself with that Old Testament vine and yet says he clearly calls himself not only the new vine, but the true vine. Do you see how important those words are? in the context of what the Old Testament had said over and over again, a new vine is needed. And Jesus is going to say, a new vine is needed, and I am he. I am the true vine of God. Now, I did some study this week on vineyards. And I pulled up a kind of a winery uh, website, and it was interesting talking about vineyard husbandry. Uh, and how important all that is. Let me just read a paragraph or two. This is what happens in the fall. Starting in late October, after the harvest is over, we repair trellises and apply lime to regulate soil acidity. We also begin the pruning to remove any unproductive or damaged vines. In November, after the leaves have begun to fall, we hill up the soft ground feet of some of the more delicate vines to protect the graft union between the root and the scion from any severe winter, winter temperatures. The sap uh, falls and the vines remain dormant until springtime. Embryonic buds form at the points where leaves had grown the previous year. Now in winter, from December through March, we do light vineyard maintenance as weather permits. But the main job is to prune the vines. Listen to this. This, is, this next sentence is what caught my attention. Grapes, fruit, and it's got fruit in parentheses, indicating that's a verb here. Grapes fruit or bear on new wood. In order for you and I to be fruit bearing, we got to have some kind of connection with a new vine. Who is that? He's identified here, isn't he? He identifies himself. Uh, are you catching my reference when I said these words are in red? He said them. The living word of God, the son of God in the flesh, said this on the last earthly night of his life before his physical death on the cross. Sounds like it's pretty important. And he, he begins 
this whole part of the discourse by saying, you know what? I'm the new vine that's been needed. And I'm the true vine. It makes that really, really, really clear here. Now, verse two and three, if you kind of scan those again, after we've had it read over us here, it's talking about fruit bearing and those that don't bear fruit. And um, it's talking about branches here. Uh, the branches here uh, probably is talking about the disciples themselves, okay? And, um, and then it's talking about there are some who be cut off or pruned back. Now, to prune here, the word prune is another, wor- another word that could be used for that. And it may occur some in your scriptures in, in some of the other translations here. Uh, the word prune is also the word clean. Clean. Or pruned or cleaned. Um, so if we're thinking about the group that he's specifically talking to on that occasion when John 15 was spoken, and by the way, John was there to write it down, who was he originally talking this to? The twelve. Actually, by the time, he, this is interesting to me, by the time he spoke John 15, they were 11. If I do my chronology right, by the time he spoke John 15, there were 11. One of them is cut off in, verse, in chapter 13. You and I know who that is, Judas, right? In fact, Jesus says to him toward the ending verses of chapter 13, buddy, if you're going to do this, why don't you just go on? Now, that's, that's a really rank paraphrase, okay? But you get it. If you're going to do, go do what you got to do. In my own particular sanctified uh, imagination and theology, I think Jesus was wooing Judas all that evening. And I think Jesus was saying to Judas, you know, you really don't have to do this. God's will will be accomplished whether you do this or not. And then he finally realized that the die was cast, the decision was made, the deal had been done. And in chapter 13, he says to Judas, why don't you go on? He'd already been pruned. Isn't that interesting? And so the 11 before him... um, He's pruning some more. He's doing that second pruning I, I, I uh, read to you about. And he'll do some more, actually, after the resurrection. Isn't it interesting that Judas has already been cleaned from among the 11? Peter's going to go through a second pruning in John 20 and 21. After his denial at the trial scene, before the cross even took place. So... The idea here is, who are those that are to be cut off? You kind of catch that thing. Now, verse 4 and 5 has some wording that's really, really important. I want to read it again. And I want you to tell me what word your verse 4 begins with here in a minute. Mine says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, it seems to me, you can go ahead and fill in your blank here. Jesus shares the relationship of those who 
remain or abide and the faith of those who are detached. Now, what word is used in your, in your Bible there? Remain. NIV, I think, uses remain. Uh, remain, abide. Anybody got a different word? I'm sorry. Did I hear another one? Go, just turn back a page or two. Go to 831. He uses the same word in 8. 831, but it has a different connotation or a different, actually, um, uh, 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 translation here, which I kind of like. Look at 831. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. Okay, so there's three words at least that I heard. Remain, abide, Continue here. Um, uh, that word continue that's translated in uh, 831, you may have it as cling or hold to. If you hang on to me. What I tend to think here is that fruit bearing, which is the subject on the table here, is a given for those who remain, who are remaining, who are abiding who are continuing or clinging or holding to him. Conversely, look at the end of verse five, back in, uh, back in John 15, look at the end of verse five. He bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Look, look at verse um, Apart from me, you can do nothing. I want you to kind of think about that. Drill down that a little bit. Detached branches don't bear any fruit. Okay? He had 11 that were about to begin their their fruit-bearing process. It's actually going to come about, what would it be, 51 days from right here. If I'm doing my math right. Something like that. Okay, they're going to they're going to respond by fruit bearing. Eleven of them. One of them was pruned, and there was no fruit bearing that took place. Kind of catch the, the deal here in verse four and five. Okay, so the idea here is that you and I have to uh, remain or abide or continue or cling or hold to Him if we have any hope of fruit bearing. Detached branches don't bear any fruit. Now look at verse six. It's talking about this act of detaching or pruning. The act of detaching is because of one's failure to remain or to abide. So if you don't remain in me or abide in me, he's gonna say. Now, if if I'm reading that right, look at verse six in your Bible. If I'm reading that right, there's a, something conditional here. He's saying, if anyone, in the New American Standard, it says, if anyone does not abide in me. There seems to me, in the wording there, that our actions, or lack of actions, result in 
what the gardener is then going to be able to do. Now look at the very last part of verse 1. Who's the gardener? God the Father. Jesus doesn't call himself the gardener. He calls himself the vine, right? So if God the Father is the gardener, there is this principle here, kind of this idea in verse 6, that if I remain in him or abide in him or continue in him or hold fast to him, that there will be a natural fruit bearing that just takes place. If I don't, okay, here's, here's where the analogy needs to be pushed. If I don't remain and I end up being in the pile of, uh, you know, the, the limbs that Francisco threw in my dumpster last week, I can't blame that on the gardener. Think about that for just a second. It's not the gardener's fault if I don't remain. All the same nutrients are in place. All the same uh, options are there. So there's, my personal will is active here. Um, uh, you don't need to wring your hands. Uh, the, the second thing that I want to to let you know, it, don't, as you read this, often when I read it, and believe me, you got to understand, I am uh, the product of my spiritual raising, which was kind of fearful. This wasn't mom and dad's fault. It was the preaching I heard over the years, okay? I kind of grew up, especially in my teenage years, fearful of being pruned, being detached. What I believe verse, anybody like that with me? Katie? You grew up in a similar environment than I did, okay? I know if I asked my wife, she'd say, yeah. Uh, it was just a fearful time. And I'd read this as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, 18-year-old uh, in that Bible that your picture is in. Do you know Joe's picture's in the Bible? Okay, now don't go too far with that, but okay. In the, if you had a love Bible, a uh, 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 Mine was paperback called The Way. Um, Joe's picture's in there. He's got hair and everything. Like long hair. Brown hair. Uh, long brown hair, yeah. Not gray hair. If, if you're reading that like I was, and by the way, I picked up that Bible because my, all I had was a King James and that. And when I discovered that, it was like, okay, the Bible kind of came alive to me. But every time I would read John 15, I'd start wringing my hands a little bit. Ooh, is he going to cut me off? And, and the truth is, as you read John 15, 6, you don't need to wring your hands about that. You just need to abide. Just continue. Just stay. Just hold on. Cling to him. Your NIV word, just remain. How do you do that? Well, you know, I had one of those mornings this morning where uh, something woke me up about 4.15 and I wasn't able to go back to sleep. For the next two and a half hours, I was remaining. I restudied a passage from uh, 1 Samuel that I haven't read in a while, but I've read a lot of times and, and uh, did some reading and a biography that I'm reading and, and I wrote in my journal. That can be called lots of different things by lots of different verbs. 
But I was kind of abiding. I was remaining. I was holding on. And by the way, can I tell you, at 61 years old, that time for me is sweeter than it has ever been. I hope that's evident in the work that we do on Sunday morning and what what I do on Tuesday morning. It's sweeter than it's ever been. The abiding is just better than it's ever been. The remaining, the clinging to, the continuing. So I don't need to wring my hands over whether or not he's going to, I'm in the dumpster. I need to just continue. Does that make it sound a little easier to you? It's as easy as just loving him. And when I make a mistake, backing up and saying, okay, Lord, I goofed that up. Uh, Yeah, I'm I'm just waiting for you to acknowledge that. His Holy Spirit often taps me on the shoulder and says, "Uh, you really don't want to go that way, do you? And I continue. Now, so the act of detaching is because of my failure to remain, to continue, to hold on. I've got a role to play here. Now look at verse 7. This is also encouraging to me. If the barometer of whether or not I am in him is fruit bearing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Another translation says, given you. If, if the truth is that uh, fruit bearing is expected, then I don't have to do that without his help. Look at 1623. If your Bible's like mine, just turn over one page to the right. 1623. He says it in another way. And that day, you'll not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he'll give it to you. And by the way, both of these are in the context of fruit bearing. Until now, you've not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you'll receive so that your joy may be full. In the NIV, it says, in, in your, so your joy will be complete. So what I'm saying is, ask. The power here is in his word, the Bible, abiding in you. Because if the word is abiding in me, then it's going to have a natural effect of aligning me, my wants, with what he wants. And he says, I'll help you accomplish it. And by the way, it, this seems to be, this, you know, these verse divisions weren't there to begin with. And when I learned this passage, I learned seven and eight together. So I'm sorry that we made this division here, but I'm going to ask Sally, if she will, in just a minute, to read verse eight down to 17, and then we'll kind of finish this. But listen to this as one, one unit. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. See how seven and eight just kind of complete a thought of one another? Now, uh, 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 Sally, if you'll pick it up in verse eight and read down through 17. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. 
Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love each other. It's really beautiful. Now let's go back to verse 8. He says here, if you bear fruit, you'll be bringing glory to God the Father. Uh, Matthew 5, 16, in a kind of a parallel section, um, uh, Matthew, Matthew is going to put the words in Jesus' mouth. Um, so let your light shine before men, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So what does it mean here? Uh, how do we give God the glory to him? The, um, the word here of glory means to honor appropriately. How do we bring appropriate honor to God? And Jesus is going to answer that in this context. He's going to say, by bearing fruit. Your fruit will honor God. Now, uh, I've got to think about that a little bit as, as I go through this. But your, how do I give God the glory due him, the, the, the appropriate honor? I, I'm going to give him that glory, or I'm going to bestow that glory on him by doing in my life what he's asking me to do. And as I bear fruit, he's going to naturally receive the glory for that if I do it in the right way. Now in verse 9 and 10, Jesus takes a little bit of a, uh, he steps back a little bit and begins to talk about from, from 9 on through 17. He's going to kind of get away from this uh, vine and vineyard and uh, gardener analogy. He's going to kind of take off on another idea and just talk simply about love. Wonderfully here, he's going to compare the love of God the Father for Jesus the Son. What kind of love was that? The greatest, divine, perfect, unconditional love. He, he's going to compare the love that the Father has for the Son and as implied, the love the, fa- the Son has back for the Father. He's going to compare that with his love for us. What a comparison. I use the word uh, appropriately here in the outline. Wonderfully, Jesus compares the love of the Father for him with his love, Jesus' love, for us. And I said a minute ago that the love of God the Father for the Son is unconditional. But the second kind of love, the love relationship that we have with him, is a bit conditional. So if you look at verse 9, what's the if? What's the condition? 
Yeah, there you go. We can choose to love him and obey him or not. He kind of lays that, I mean, that's a little scary when you think about it. He leaves the option up to, he loves us and loves us and loves us and serves us and dies for us. And then he says, okay, I've shown you how much I love you. Are you going to love me back? The choice is yours. I've got a thick theology book in my library at home titled, The God Who Risks. That's the gamble, isn't it? To send his son to die for you and me. That son that he loved unconditionally and wonderfully. And the risk is whether or not I'm going to love him back. I spoke to a couple this week who's very worried about a member of their family who grew up knowing the love of God and now has just chosen to go a completely different route. Exercising the option. I don't want to be in that place. He's going to remind them beginning in verse 11. He's going to predict for them a couple of things. Beginning here, he's going to convict them. That he's going to kind of remind them that the days are coming here. This day that you're in right now, he's going to say, in the upper room, on, um, in the aftermath of what you and I know as the Last Supper, those are days of confusion. There'll be some other confusing days to come. He'll be mocked and tried and They'll go to the, three of them will go with him to the Garden of Gethsemane and fall asleep there. And there's lots and lots of confusion over the days yet to come. That's what to put in that first blank. The confusion will be followed. It doesn't get better. The confusion will be followed by sadness. Deep, morose. Crippling sadness in the aftermath of the cross for three days. But then it will be followed on Easter morning with joy, with joy. Look, at, turn over to 1622 one more time. Let me read. Read it a little bit ago. Therefore, you two will have grief now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice. And no one will take your joy away from you. There's this, he predicts, this is a day of confusion and it's gonna be followed by a day of sadness. But I'm gonna tell you that later your joy will be complete. And in the context of all of that that he's predicting, he gives us and them one central command. There's no list like in Exodus 20. You know, he doesn't even give us 10. He just gives us one. That, it ought to be easy just to do one. It's actually not, is it? But he gives us one. In verse 11, what is it? Love. It's kind of simple, isn't it, in that, in that regard? The answer is always going to be love. And it, in the context of this series that we're working through here in, in March and April and May, uh, we're just going to keep hammering away at this because it's so true that he was. John will never forget this lesson. In fact, 
if you remember, we studied 1 John and a little bit of 2 John and 3 John a few weeks back. It's going to be, it's going to fill up his letters. Love, love, love. Get this right, he says. John will never forget it. He, he sees it here. He sees it acted out on the cross, and he's never going to forget it. And so in verse 13, Jesus begins to be predictive or prophetic. And he begins, uh, this is foreshadowing, this is kind of going back, harking back to what happens in what he talks about in verse 12. Okay, he says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And then as he begins here, what is recorded for us in, in verse 13, greater love had no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So this foreshadowing, which goes in your blank here, when he says, as I have loved you in verse 12, it intensifies here in this prophecy in verse 13. Verse 13, it's a hint at the price that he is willing to pay and that he's getting ready to pay, the price that will have to be paid for their eternal life and for yours and mine. And as he begins to describe what happens in the aftermath, he says, if you'll obey this command, It'll result in a change in status for you. The word that's used here to describe their former status is the word servant, but it's really the word slave. He said, if you'll do this, and if you'll remain in me, then no longer we have to worry about slavery to me or anybody else. He's going to say, if we love the command here, you are my friends. Isn't it interesting to see that the barometer here or the litmus test is simply love? And he says, I'm going to call you my friend. I can't imagine a a more uh, honest honor than to be called his friend. And in verse 16, that fruit is to be enduring. And and I would say here, when he talks about enduring fruit in verse 16, he's talking about two things. Okay, so how many of you like M&Ms? All right, okay. My assignment for you is sometime in the next week, eat a package of M&Ms, okay? That's a good assignment, all right? And remember, that it's not just, you're not just eating an M, even though there's, as I recall, I didn't go get some, but I think this is right. If you look at an M and M, it doesn't have two M's on it, it's just got one. Am I right? Prove me wrong, I think it's just got one M on it, like a lower, lowercase M, which is interesting to me, because I think what Jesus is talking about here in terms of fruit bearing, he's talking about two kinds of M's. He's talking about maturity in love that's described in Galatians 5, and 23, that love, joy, peace, patience, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all those things. Uh, growing up to be like him, so maturing in him. But it's also talking about what he's going to leave them as a commission at the end of end of uh, the gospel of Matthew in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. It's also, it's not just maturing, growing up in him. That's supreme, but it's also multiplying 
Be careful that your M&M doesn't just have one M in it. It's important that fruit bearing for you is not in me, is not just growing in the fruit of the Spirit that, that Paul describes in Galatians 5 we studied a couple weeks ago. But that it also has something to do with multiplying my faith in terms of reaching out to other people, discipling others. The two M's, maturity and multiplication is important here. So that's the part that's to endure. As I plug in the word remain here, the word remain uh, literally is the same word that is enduring here. Remaining, enduring. Okay, now here's, here's, uh, here's a review. First John 4, 19. We're gonna do it together, all right? Really easy, just what, five or six words. We're, just, we're gonna say the reference first and then repeat the verse, you ready? First John 4, 19. We loved as he first loved us. Was it we loved because he first loved us? Yeah, let's do it again. I got it wrong. Let's do it again. First John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. You got it better than I did. That's good. Now, all the commands here, we're going to keep talking about this for yet another month or more. All the commands boil down to just one. The final exam is going to have one question on it. It's got one answer. Love. Love. Will you join me in figuring out what that means? We love because he first loved us. As I meditate on the cross in these days, may I remember how supremely he showed me how. And as a, as a person who's got the benefit of the gardener being careful with me, staying connected to the vine, may my vine life produce love as well. All right, guess where we're going next week? You're gonna think, what is this guy on? Joel 2. Joel 2. It'll take you half the week just to find Joel 2. Okay? I'll see you next week.